Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. But today we are kicking off a brand new series called Summer at Bridgepoint. I'm so excited because every week you're going to get to hear from some very gifted and talented communicators right here at Bridgepoint. And, and um, we actually had somebody who was scheduled to teach today, but there was a conflict. And so we do have a special guest speaker this morning. So I'd love for you guys to put a, your hands together and give a warm Bridgepoint welcome to Matt Spear. Woo! Yeah. That's just a cheap way for me to get you to clap for me, right? Uh, no, you, I, it's weird. I get to be the guest speaker at the church where I pastor. Uh, but this actually is great because if you've been at Bridgepoint for any length of time, you know that we normally teach through series. So you might pick a book of the Bible like Romans, Mark, Revelation, just camp out there for a few months. We'll look at spiritual practices like prayer and just camp out there for a while. We'll look at a theme like we did last month when we did our um, On Earth As It Is in Heaven series, looking at how do we live our life joining Jesus and his mission. Um, but I have all of these ideas for different topics that I think would be good, but it's really hard to build a series around that. And so today I just get to do one of these, you know, one and done kind of series. So I want to preface this. I'm going to tell you today the topic is hell. So it is Hell Sunday here at Bridgepoint. And uh, I can tell by the look on some of your faces, you wish you had stayed home today. And, and I get that because honestly, I think the topic of hell, we could all admit, has probably been um, misused and abused by a lot of churches and church leaders. It's certainly been used to mani- manipulate people into you know, praying a prayer and making a decision for Jesus. It's been used to manipulate people into giving money or being good churchgoers. Um, but I think that Part of the problem is that a lot of our understandings of hell come more from like medieval art and literature than actually what the Bible has to say. In fact, some of our views of hell were more shaped by Looney Tunes than scripture. Um, When I first uh, started in ministry, I was a a student pastor in a small town called Portal, Georgia, population like 53 people. And the best part about being a student pastor at this church meant that I was also the church van driver. So I actually went around, this is how dedicated I was. I had to drive to people's house to pick them up to come to Wednesday night student events. And it was all dirt roads too. So if it rained too much, you aren't gonna have anybody show up at your church. But I remember one of the first Wednesday nights, I sat all the kids down. I was trying to figure out like, okay, I don't know where they are spiritually. I just looked around and said, what, tell me what your favorite Bible stories are. Dead silent. They're kind of looking around at each other. And one kid raised his hand and said, well, my grandma said some miners dug down so deep they could hear the screams from the pit of hell. And I was like, all right, that's where we're starting at this uh, student group. Uh, And I had to tell their kid their grandma was a liar. Uh, No, I didn't do that. Uh, But I do think we have these pictures of hell. Is it flames and devils with pitchforks and what on earth is going on? So here's kind of what I want to do for today. And by the way, how uh, fun this message is, is going to be dependent on the questions that you guys send in. So the message is shorter. uh, And last time we got like more questions than we had time to get to. But feel free to send those questions in. Okay, help me out. This is, you're really the teacher today. Okay, so send those questions in. Um, This actually, oddly enough, is one of the theological topics that like I did like a years long deep dive into. So I'm not saying I'm an expert and I have all the answers, um, but I think we can have some good conversation today. So what I'm going to do is kind of lay out throughout church history what kind of the the main views of hell are. And then I want to take a step back from that 
And I go, we got my handy dandy whiteboard. We're going to draw some pictures today. I'm like Steve from Blue's Clues. And uh, we're going to figure this thing out together. No, we're, uh, and then I just want to talk about the story of Jesus and how that relates to this whole hell conversation. Sound good? All right. An important thing to bear in mind is that throughout church history, um, hell is not one of the primary like things that Christians divided over, especially at the beginning, which is weird because I know when you start talking about hell, people are like, oh, you know, so you're, you're going soft on the gospel and this, that. But this is a, a topic that's been debated and discussed, and, and really there wasn't a general consensus for a long time. In fact, if you look at the Nicene and Apostles' Creed, hell's not mentioned at all. If you read the book of Acts, there are eight gospel sermons presented, and hell is never mentioned once. In fact, I think we assume that the Bible says more about hell than it actually does. And because of that, there's been three main views. And these three main views, listen, good and godly people will, will take each of these views. Um, but I just want to go through them with you and kind of explain what they mean. So the first one we're going to talk about is the most traditional one. It's called eternal conscious torment, or ECT for short. And because I'm a good pastor, I'm going to give you a P word to help you remember each of these. And the P word for this one is punishment. So this is the idea that, that people eternally are conscious being tormented, whether that's flames, God's wrath, whatever, but they are conscious and, and feeling all of this agony. The wrath of God is being poured out. And so this is kind of the traditional view. Um, actually did not become very popular until Augustine in the fourth century. But for most of us, this is probably what we grew up learning. And I would actually argue that this one, and this is where I'll step on some toes, has the least amount of scriptural support. There's like five or six verses that lead us to that kind of thought or idea. And there are some talk about eternal punishment, and, and certainly that's in there. But I think once you start diving in and looking at the context around those verses, I think that they're not quite as clear as, as maybe we once thought that they were. Um, but again, that's probably where most of us grew up. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about that. The second popular view is one called conditionalism or annihilationism, and the P word for this one is perishing. So this is where um, people uh, are, it's conditionalism, their mortality is conditional on their relationship with Jesus. So actually in Timothy, it says um, that only God is immortal, and only he has the, the ability to give eternal life. Um, and so the thought here is that anyone who is separated from God at the end of time, when Jesus comes back, brings heaven to earth, everyone is raised from the dead. And when we stand before the judgment, those who committed their lives to Jesus would spend eternity with him. And those who are not committed to Jesus would be annihilated or their life would be uh, snuffed out once and for all. Um, this one, uh, when you start looking into how the Bible talks about Gehenna, says, you know, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish. That literally means be destroyed, but have eternal life. So that's, that's the second one. The third one is universalism or universal reconciliation, restorationism. The, the P word for this is purifying. Now, it's important for me to point out that the, the people who are Jesus followers who believe in universalism, what they don't believe is that all faiths lead to salvation. What they do believe is that Jesus' death and resurrection was so powerful that at some point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. There's even verses in Revelation talking about when heaven comes to earth and 
Revelation's all metaphor, so you got to be careful with how literally you take everything. But it describes this picture of heaven on earth with these gates, and it says the gates will never shut. The gates will always be open. So there's this idea that at some point, um, even after death, that people may have an opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. And really it's this idea that what hell would be is this process of, of purifying where Paul says, um, some of you are saved though through fire and everything in our lives that does not look like Jesus gets burned up. And then when that's all gone, then we enter into heaven and eternal life with Jesus. Okay, so these are kind of the three main views. And a big thing, I, here's what I love about our church community. I think that there are some communities that would not be willing to have this conversation on a Sunday morning because this becomes like such a tightly held thing that you feel like, okay, if we're questioning any of this, then we're losing the gospel. Good, godly people hold each of these views. Okay, now that doesn't mean that you just pick the one you think is the best and run with it, right? I would encourage you study scripture, read some good theology, but, but this is a great framework for you to understand the three main views. But the question that I want us to look at is, well, what is the story of the Bible saying and how does that relate to this idea of hell? So that's where I get to draw pictures this morning. And as I say, you know, go easy on me. I know how to draw one shape. Anybody know what that shape is? Ah, oh, I love you guys. You already knew where I was going. All right. I mean, we're going to mix it up today, though. It's going to be a little bit different. Now, some of you don't zone out. Like, just stick with me here. Because the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the, and the, all right. So that is an ancient way of saying God created everything, all right? So just like if I said, I love you to the moon and back. I'm not saying I literally am going to the moon and back, or my love has a limit. Just, I love you with all that I am. In the same way, God created everything at the beginning. And in Genesis 1-2, it says, the earth was formless and void, or wild and waste. It's actually in Hebrew, it's the word tohu wabohu, which like Francisco, it's fun to say. I love my favorite Hebrew word. It just means everything was in chaos and disorder. So that's kind of the starting point. And when God begins his act of creation, what he's doing is he's just putting everything in order. So he separates the light from the dark, the ground from the sky, the land from the sea. And the way the Bible describes what God is doing is that he's actually, he creates a garden in Eden and the, it describes it as this elevated place. And I always draw a plateau instead of a triangle so I don't get accused of drawing Illuminati symbols or something on Sunday morning. But it is this elevated place. All of these rivers are flowing out. It's the same way that ancient Hebrew texts describe the creation of a temple. In fact, when they would build a temple, there was a six-day temple creation ceremony, and on the, the last day, the God would take up residence. And so for six days, God is kind of bringing order in this world, and on the seventh day, he takes up residence in his temple. And if you went into a temple in that culture, there was always something inside. It was probably a statue called an image so that you could look at that and know what that God looked like. So if you walk into, you know, Bob's temple and you would see an image of Bob, so you knew exactly what that God looked like. And in the same way, when God builds his temple, he puts his images in there. And that was Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve were given this responsibility as priests in the world. So they're supposed to work in the world and watch over it. It actually says that they were supposed to subdue the earth, which if you don't understand the context, that gets into really weird things like, oh, we got to take over this earth. That is not what God was telling them to do. He was saying, I want you to go out into all the chaos and disorder and actually continue my work of bringing heaven to earth. 
of bringing things into order. By the way, that's why I like things like art and music, I think they're so powerful because that's bringing beauty and goodness into the world. I think that's some of the things that we as human beings were designed by God to do. Now in this temple, there's a lot of trees, but two of them get names. There's the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, hey, trust me to decide what's good and evil. What do Adam and Eve do? Audience participation here. What do Adam and Eve do? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they do, sin and death are unleashed into God's temple, right? So, so they're polluting God's temple, so they have to leave and go out into the chaotic and disordered world. And, and it's at this point that a lot of people say, yep, and God's just trying to pluck people out of here before they go to hell and get them into heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the whole story of the Old Testament is how God wanted to use his people, the nation of Israel, to show the world what this looks like. In fact, he gave them instructions on how to build a tabernacle or a temple, right? Just like the temple in, in Eden. And in the tabernacle, when you would go in to make your sacrifices, all the pictures on the wall were pictures of the Garden of Eden. It was all designed to point back to this. And so they would go into this temple to meet with God. The temple's where God and his people get to be together. But there's a problem because we're living in polluted space. So when you read in Leviticus, which I know is everybody's favorite devotional material, you get all the gory details, literally gory details of sacrifices. But the whole point is they would sacrifice animals like a lamb and take the blood of that lamb, sprinkle it around the temple, and that would cleanse the pollution of sin out of the temple so that God could be with his people. Now, the problem with this was, well, number one, God gets to a point with his people where he said, guys, you're going through the motions. You think that what I wanted was a sacrifice. That's not actually what I wanted. What I wanted was to be with you and for you to be the images that I always intended for you to be. So Israel got to the point where they lived however they wanted to live. They spent their whole time living like this and just thought if I make the sacrifices, then I'm good with God. That's important to understand because I think a lot of us live our lives that way as well. We do whatever we want to do. We think if I just go to church, read my Bible, do all the right things, and I'm good with God. God actually told Israel and Isaiah, I hate your sacrifices. It's never been about that. I want your heart. I want to have that relationship with you. And so Israel turns their back on God, decides we'll just go through the motions. God says, I'm not going to force myself onto you. And when he does, the Israel's enemies come in. And when they come in, the, one of the first things that Israel's enemy does is they destroy the temple. By the way, this is why it's such a big deal. Because when the temple's gone, where's God? He's gone too. There is no more heaven on earth. This is a huge question for the Jewish people at the end of the Old Testament because they're left wondering, okay, is this all that there ever is going to be? Like, is God really done with his people? Actually, when you understand this, it actually brings some of the Bible stories to life. You guys ever heard of the story of the woman at the well where Jesus meets this Samaritan woman? The reason they end up having this crazy conversation because at one point in Israel's history, when they started on the decline, it split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Well, the southern kingdom, uh, their capital was Jerusalem, where the temple was. But the northern kingdom, they don't have access to the temple anymore. So they have to build their own temple. And the people who worship at that temple end up, their descendants become the Samaritans. And so there's this big debate, whose temple is the real temple? Where, where do you really go to be in unpolluted space? 
And so when Jesus and this woman are talking, she says, hey, well, your ancestors say that you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. My ancestors say worship here. Who really knows? And Jesus says there is coming a time and it's here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What he's saying is there's coming a time where you won't have to go to the temple to be in unpolluted space anymore, but you can actually worship and experience God's presence wherever you are. And she says, I know that this will happen when the Messiah comes. He'll explain it to us. And Jesus goes, I'm him right here. That's why she's so shocked because he's saying, hey, listen, this whole thing right here is about to change because I've come to do something important. And the gospel writers pick up on this because John, I mean, John is littered with all allusions to this whole temple thing. In fact, John 1.1 starts with in the beginning, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John is telling a new creation story. You've heard about what happened in the old ways, but there's something new that's happening. And in John chapter one, verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Greek word for, for dwelt among us, he, he tabernacled. It's, it's drawing allusions back to that. In fact, Jesus believed that he was the temple. He tells the Pharisees, he says, hey, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it again. And they thought, you're crazy. How are you going to destroy this whole temple and build it in three days? And it says later, the disciples did not realize he was talking about his own body. Jesus believed that he was the temple. Just a few verses later in John chapter 1, verse 29, says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's this idea there's not just going to be a lamb that cleanses a little space. Jesus is actually going to be the one true temple. And get this, and I might be the only one who gets excited about this, but this to me is cool because in Jesus' culture, they looked at sin as this pollution. So if there was someone who was sinning, everywhere they went, they were polluting that space. And if you got too close to somebody who was considered a sinner, you would be polluted and you would not be allowed to enter into the temple. And so you have almost like, um, I used to use this illustration, but it's even stronger than this. You guys remember cooties? Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I got my cootie shot. None of y'all were anti-vaxxers with the cootie shot. I can promise you that. Don't email me. That's a joke, all right? <laughs> but, but I remember there'd be, there'd be people who are like, I don't want to be around them because they're going to they're gonna, like, lower my status. But this was like that only times a million. Because not only would you infect me, you would prevent me from going to the temple to do what I'm supposed to do. And so this is why people were excluded. Now, the people who were excluded, those are the ones that Jesus spent his time with. That's why the Pharisees were so frustrated. Because for Jesus, this is the amazing thing. For Jesus, it wasn't sin that was contagious. It was his cleansing that was contagious. So this is why when Jesus is ministering and there's a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and she, because she was bleeding, she was considered a sinner and unclean for 12 years. She hadn't been able to worship. And not only that, she couldn't be around anybody else because then they wouldn't be able to worship. So there's this crowd of people pressing in on Jesus and she's at the edge because she's not allowed to be there. But she pushes through those people. She's contaminating everyone on the way, reaches out, touches Jesus, and then she's the one who gets healed. Like see, Jesus healing is what's contagious. Like when he uh, raises people from the dead, he's bringing heaven to earth. When he heals people, when he casts out demons, like this is what he is doing. He's bringing heaven to earth and he's inviting these people into the presence of God. Like this is such good stuff. And what thanks did Jesus get for this? Well, he's killed. And so for three days, seems like, well, I guess this is just all that's ever gonna be. This is why one of the saddest verses in the Bible 
is when these disciples are leaving to head back home, they say, we had hoped that he was the one who had come to bring heaven to earth. They had lost their hope. And see, by the way, this is why following Jesus, the most important thing, understand what I'm saying here, the most important thing isn't the cross, because lots of people died on the cross. The most important thing is the resurrection, because only one person came back to life. This is what Paul said, golly, this is what Paul said when he said, without the resurrection, our faith is meaningless. But when Jesus came back to life, he said, guess what? Heaven's come to earth, the temple's here to stay, and nothing is going to stop it. And so we get this beautiful picture of what Jesus has come to do. And so we're, of course, invited into this whole thing. What does any of this have to do with hell? I'm glad you asked. If you remember, we did a series. I feel like I'm going a million miles an hour, but I'm trying to leave some time for Q&A. So if you need me to pump the brakes, just wave at me. But I got two more verses I want to look at. We went through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5, I want to read two verses to you. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sin. So you get this picture of a world where death entered through one man, through Adam. And because of Adam, this whole world is infected and contaminated. And not just Adam, by the way. This is like all of us participate in this. But if you jump down to verse 15, it said, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? So what is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying there's really two realms that we get to live in. And the beautiful thing is God's given us the ability to choose which one we want to live in. We can live in the world in the way of Adam, or we can live in the way of Jesus. Like we can live being selfish, materialistic, prideful, vain, conceited. Everything's always about me. It's on my timetable, what I want, when I want. It can be all about us, and we live in the world of Adam. And that always leads to pain, death, and destruction. Or we can choose to live the way of Jesus. Now, sometimes we're living the way, the picture's not perfect here, and not just because I drew it, but because the way of Jesus is in the middle of this way. And so sometimes it's hard to live in the way of Jesus when it feels like the whole world is like this. But what scripture tells us is one day, Jesus will bring heaven to earth once and for all. Right now, it comes in these small moments, and one day Jesus is going to come, and he's going to wipe this whole thing clean. And the question that the Bible asks of us is what in our life will remain when that happens? If we align ourselves with the things of this world, then we run the risk of being wiped out along with all the evil in the world. If we align ourselves with Jesus, that's the only hope we have of anything in our lives standing the test of time. Does this make sense? Like this is so crucial because this understanding means that following Jesus is not about what you believe. It isn't about praying a prayer. It's not about checking off the boxes and then waiting until one day you go to heaven when you die. It's about this process of actually becoming formed like Jesus, becoming more like him. In fact, my job as a pastor, some of you are like, what do you do exactly during the week? That's a great question. My job is not to get up and give a sermon for 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. My job is not to facilitate a business that sells religious goods and services. 
My job is to help you become more like Jesus. My job is to help equip you to go from here to there. And it's a process. It doesn't happen in an instant. I wish it did. It's not about how much you know, not about how much scripture you've memorized. It's about the life that you're living. What in your life looks more like this and less like that? So having said all that, I am going to throw it open to Q&A. So I'm going to start with one text in question. And then if you have a question and you want to raise your hand, we'll just call on people today. I'm an introvert. I would never, ever do that at a church because I would be terrified. But some of you are extroverts and like to talk. So if you want to do that, let me answer this one. Gather your thoughts. We'll dive in. Purifying seems like a path to heaven instead of a different destination entirely. Is that a good way to think about it? Uh, yes. So we actually, in the last service, we got a question. So I'm kind of cheating. I'm going to give you the other question. The last service, they asked about purgatory and is it biblical? And I said this, I'm not 100% sure because I'm not a Catholic scholar and theologian. My understanding is Catholic scholars and theologians would tell you that purgatory is not biblical in the sense that there's a verse that they find and say, hey, here's where it talks about purgatory necessarily. But it's this idea, and here's where I'm going with this. I'm not buying into purgatory. I'm in the Protestant camp. But it's this idea that one day when we die, we will be in the presence of Jesus and we will become fully formed like him. But the question is, does that happen in an instant? Or is, it gonna work, is God going to have to work to remove some stuff from our life? I would like to believe that it happens in an instant. But I tell you what, purifying through fire does not sound fun to me. And so what I want to do in my life is work in asking Jesus to purify me now so that I become more like him. And in terms of what we were talking about earlier, that purifying path, that universalism, they would just say, hey, that whatever hell looks like, it is that process of purifying, cleansing, wiping away everything so that you can enter into um, eternal life with Jesus. Now, I will put my cards on the table. I am a hopeful universe. Like, I think everybody is. Everybody hopes that, you know, everybody every knee bows and every tongue confesses that unless you're just like cold hearted I think everybody probably is hopeful in that I also want to be careful because I know that I live a very you know I, I have a good life right I'm not I'm not living in a country where I'm worried for my safety I have not been oppressed by people I haven't been involved in human trafficking and so it does seem to me like there are certain ways of life that could dehumanize us and so solidify us into the things of the world that there may be, even if you had all eternity to make that decision, you've been like so hardened in your heart that you would never make that decision. And that maybe there is just an end to existence. And, and so I probably put myself in that camp. That's a great, great question. Uh, I have time for more texting question, but does anybody here have a question? Anybody, any extroverts here today? All right. Yep. Yeah, so weeping, gnashing of teeth, that's a reference. Um, when we read our Bibles, we're reading it in English. And so a lot of the English words have more than one Greek word that goes with us. The word there is Gehenna. It's actually an actual place, the Valley of Hinnom, which was outside of Jerusalem, where it was a burning trash heap that's like just burned the whole time. And anything you wanted to destroy and get rid of, you threw it there. And Jesus uses that imagery. By the way, all the times Jesus talks about hell, he uses it 
not to scare people into a relationship with him, but to remind the religious people that, remember, we're supposed to be moving over here. And I think what Jesus is getting at there is, hey, you could live in a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like you might end up somewhere, someplace where there is destruction, there's death. And I think it's a reminder to us, what is the trajectory of our life? How are we living? Great question. Anybody else? All right. I can't really see you guys. All right. All right. Is, is that Lazarus? Okay, all right, good. So, man, I'm proud of myself because I am not good with scripture references. So the parable of Lazarus, so if you remember, it's, uh, there's a rich ruler. He has, and I'm going off of memory here, so some of the details might be off. He's wearing a purple robe. He's like this, supposed to be this royalty. So he's living in a very privileged position in his life. And Jesus tells this parable. He's like, let's say there's a, rich, a certain rich man. And Jesus is telling a parable, which is a story. So just like if I said, so a guy walks into a bar, right? You're, you're not asking who is the guy, where is the bar, did this really happen? You just know that this is a joke, this is a story. Jesus says, so there's a certain rich man. And in life, this guy's very privileged. In death, he goes down to what the actual Greek word is, Hades. And the poor man that got abused and oppressed his whole life, he doesn't go to heaven. He goes to a place called Abraham's bosom or paradise. So Jesus is actually speaking from a Jewish framework, they didn't understand heaven and hell like we do. They believed that people would go to Hades or Sheol. It was a place of death until the resurrection. And so that's where this, this rich ruler guy is. And then the, the poor guy, he's in Abraham's bosom. He's in a holding cell uh, up with the, the good place until the resurrection comes. And the point Jesus was making here is saying, hey, here's your concept of the afterlife and understand you can live in all this mess and kind of live life on your own accord. But that doesn't actually mean that you're doing the stuff God's called you to do. And there can be eternal consequences for that. Within that story, he's not talking about heaven and the hell the way we would understand, but he's speaking to ancient people and their understanding of it. In the same way, and this is a, this can be a whole nother message for another time. When the, the, the original audience of the Bible thought that, uh, it was a flat earth and there was a dome in the sky called the firmament and the stars were actually gods. And so the Bible will refer to the gods in the sky, like talking about the stars, just because the Bible describes something a certain way doesn't necessarily mean it affirms that worldview, but that it's speaking to a specific audience in a specific time. And I would think that that's probably what Jesus is doing there. Did that make sense? If not, just... Right, right, yep. And, and a lot of people would look at it that way. There, so I probably am in that camp with you on that. Um, I do know that there are some, again, good godly people, scholars who have great answers to those questions in terms of the universalism idea, um, but great question.
Great question. This is one of the last questions the disciples asked Jesus. They said, oh, so is now the time you're going to bring Israel back to power? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time or the place. And I feel like in my life, I ask God a lot of questions and he tells me, you don't need to worry about that. Um, and I don't mean that in a dismissive way. That's a great question. Um, and I do think it's a great question too, because for a lot of people, um, especially um, with certain understandings of the end of the world, I remember there's a big emphasis. Once we share the gospel with everybody, then God will have to bring his kingdom. And once we do this, the Pharisees, when they were living in this mess, they had a phrase, if one Sabbath could be kept holy, then God would be forced to restore Israel back to prominence and power. And I think that for a lot of us, myself included, there is such a it kind of sucks to feel like you don't really have control sometimes. Um, but the picture, I think we talked about this two weeks ago, the picture of Revelation is that when that day comes, that they're the picture of the big battle. You guys remember talking about that Jesus rides in with his white horse and he's getting ready to face the bad guy. And then it's just the battle's over before it starts. And all of the people who follow Jesus, they were standing there, but they didn't do anything. And so I always go back and forth and I debate, I love using that phrase, bring heaven to earth, because it makes me feel like I have, there's an intentionality to my actions, but I also know that I can't do it. I know one day Jesus will bring it back in full. I don't know when that's going to be, but when that happens, I want to be caught bringing heaven to earth and unleashing heaven instead of unleashing hell. Great question. Is anybody, I'll, I'll do one more. I don't have time. All right. Yep. Right, right. And, you know, Jesus talks about that. I mean, just, you know, he uses the, the parable of the, you know, the, the bridegroom goes off. Jesus says, man, I'm going off on a tangent here. Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. In that culture, when a, a groom was about to be married to a bride, he would go back to his house. He would add an attachment on to his family. So you get these big family compounds that go off. And whenever he's finished, he gets to go back and get his bride and they get to be married and move in together. And so when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, it's that imagery of like, he's coming back. You don't know when he's coming back. He'd come back tomorrow. He could come back in a hundred years and a thousand years, but I want to be ready when he does come back. And then I'm going to trust he's taking care of bringing, bringing me to the house. I don't have to do it all on my own. But fantastic. Great, great questions, guys. This was awesome. This is fun. Let's do it again next week. Um, what I want to do in our time here with Jesus, so the most important thing we do every week is our communion time. So we have four communion stations around the room. And I just want you to wrestle with two questions with Jesus. Jesus, is there any area of my life that looks like this that I need to surrender? And, and if, if you're like me, I know the areas I'm hanging on to. I'm just like, Jesus, don't, don't tell me to give that up, anything but that. And then I want you to ask him, what can I do this week just to be caught bringing heaven to earth? And, and by the way, it doesn't have to be. I've, I catch myself sometimes saying, if I had more influence or if I had more money or if I had more time, if I had more, then I would do something. The reality is because it's not up to us, we can bring heaven to earth in very small ways. I mean, this can be paying for somebody's meal today. It can be um, mowing your neighbor's yard. 
It could be just literally sitting and having a conversation with somebody, just being there if they're struggling or celebrating with somebody. We think of all these grand gestures, that's great. And, and we do things like packing meals and we're still collecting more food to pack more meals. And we go to the Oaks Assisted Living. Those are all great steps too, but you don't have to wait for us to do a church-wide thing to bring heaven to earth. You can do that on your way home today or tomorrow morning at work or later this week in the evening with your family. So Jesus, what area of my life are you calling me to lay down? In what ways can I bring heaven to earth this week? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Jesus, we're so thankful. We're thankful that you came to bring heaven to earth, that death didn't stop you. And we're thankful that even though sometimes the world feels like hell, that we know you're bringing heaven. And so I pray you would be with each and every one of us, that you would just shine a light on the areas that we need to surrender to you. I pray you would open our eyes to see the ways that we could love and serve the people around us in big ways and in small. And I pray that through all of that, you would shape us, you would change us, you would help us to become more like you. It's in your name I pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.